This show contains descriptions of violent crimes and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. A call comes in to the fire department about a small cabin being on fire. The caller says there are two boys still inside the small house. This is a horrible story about a father who in his intent to hurt his ex-wife sacrificed the lives of his own children. Hi, and welcome to episode 24 of True Crime Sweden. I am your host, Panilla. Before I get into today's case, I just want to go back to a couple of podcasts that I recommended on previous episodes, because I had some questions on social media about the names of them. The first one is from Ireland. The podcast is called Men's Ria. That is M-E-N-S-R-E-A. And it's hosted by Sinead. And the second one I want to go back to is Extraordinary Stories Podcast, or ESP, hosted by Bass from Scotland. Both these podcasts are fabulous. I love the stories, the accents, everything about them. Be sure to check out Men's Ria and Extraordinary Stories podcast on your favorite podcast provider. And I also want to mention that today's fun fact about Sweden is about the laws when you get divorced and also the laws around inheritance. So don't miss it. And I just want to say that I'm sorry about the sound in the Q&A episode. That was the first time recording with someone else and we really tried to get the settings right on the microphone and everything and it sounded really great when we recorded but then when it was time to edit yeah Johanna's voice didn't come through quite as good as I I wished for. I'm sorry about that I'm learning as I'm going Uh, I hope you could listen to the episode anyway. Now over to today's case. Early in the morning on Sunday, September 29th, 2013, a 112 call was made to report a fire in a house in Dalarö. 112 is the European 911 number, and Dalarö is a locality in the outskirts of Stockholm by the ocean. The 112 call was made by a woman who had a child standing next to her, The beginning of the call goes like this. Operator. SOS 112. What has happened? Woman. There's a fire. Malmvägen 21. Dalarö. Malmvägen. 
Yes, 21. Is the house on fire? It's a smaller, the little cabin next to the bigger house. It's just next to it, just a couple of meters. Two children are inside. Two children are inside the cabin? Yes, there's fire everywhere. When will the firemen get here? Is it here on Dalarö? Yes, Dalarö. Their father is gone. They rent the cabin from us. Here, this is Malmvägen 21, Dalarö. The operator is talking to someone on the other line. A cabin is on fire. Two children are inside. The woman, now crying. Yes, the whole house is on fire now. It's all on fire. Operator is again talking to someone on the other line. The whole cabin is on fire, she says. The woman. Yeah, I don't know how it started. I woke up and I heard a noise, like something was breaking. And I heard them screaming. Oh my God. She's crying really hard now. Operator. Were the kids alone over there? Woman. Well, I don't know. The little girl came running and she says her dad is gone. Operator. So a girl is outside with you? Woman. One girl is out. There are two boys in there. Operator. Two children inside. But the father. He's not there, right? Woman. No, I don't know where he is. His car is gone. Operator. How big is the cabin? Could you give me some more information? We will help you as fast as we can. Woman. It's about 15, 20 square meters. And that is about 160 to 220 square feet. Operator. Okay, I see. Woman. Oh God, no honey, no, not over there. Don't look over there. She's crying. Oh my God, oh God. The call continues for about 10 more minutes and the operator is trying to keep the woman calm because she's crying and she's very upset. The woman says she took a fire extinguisher from the main house but it wasn't functioning properly. By the time she got there, the fire was too big to have been affected by the small extinguisher. She later tells the police that she could hear the two boys screaming from within the house when she first got there. But as the fire grew, their voices turned silent. Since the cabin was very close to the main building, she was also worried that the fire would spread. And while she was talking to the 112 operator, the little girl who managed to escape the nightmare is standing next to her, asking when she can go see her mommy. The woman is very upset and in shock. And her husband is at work, so there is no other adult to turn to. Imagine standing in the middle of the night, looking at a huge fire burning down your guest house. 
while you know that there are two little boys trapped inside, and you are holding the hand of their older sister. But let's go back a few years and start from the beginning. Lotta was 32 years old when she met the charming two-year-older Jonas in 2002. They met online, and it was love at first sight when they finally met. He was divorced and had two children, born in 1994 and 1997. It all happened very fast. They fell in love and moved in together after two months. They did everything together, and their relationship was initially very strong. When they decided to start a family, the dynamic between them changed quickly, though. Four years after they met, they had their first child, Maya. This was in 2006. Then Simon came in 2008 and Emil in 2009. Having three children in three years would put a strain to any relationship. But Lotta later states that something changed about Jonas after the kids came. She started noticing that he became very jealous of the children when Lotta focused a lot of attention on them. It was like he couldn't deal with the fact that he wasn't number one for me anymore. I still loved him just as much, but things just weren't the same with three toddlers in the house, Lotta says. Jonas and Lotta's relationship were breaking down after Emil was born. At first, he tried to convince Lotta to have an abortion when she became pregnant with her third child, Emil. He didn't want any more kids, he said. When Emil was born, Jonas became even more jealous, angry and frustrated. He didn't talk to Lotta about how he felt. Instead, he bottled everything up inside. They had constant bickering and fights with each other. Lotta tried to get Jonas to go to therapy, but he wouldn't have any of that. After a couple of breakups and getting back together again for the children's sake, Lotta finally filed for divorce in April of 2012. Jonas did not cope with the separation in a constructive way. While Lotta felt relieved by the fact that she had gotten out of a destructive relationship, Jonas had a hard time letting go. He told Lotta that he would sell his company, spend all his money, and then kill himself. At various occasions, after she filed for divorce, he would threaten to kill himself if Lotta didn't take him back. Jonas's first wife, we can call her Anna, was interviewed by a local newspaper after the murders, and she had a similar experience of being in a relationship with Jonas. As long as you are together, it kind of works. It's when you leave him you end up in hell. This is a pattern of many abusive men. At first, they are loving and attentive, and then the controlling and power trips start. At last, when the woman tries to leave, then it can get really ugly. Anna had two children by Jonas and lived with him for 12 years. They separated when their youngest was only a few years old, and Anna moved out of the house to stay with her parents. Shortly after, Jonas met Lotta, 
but that did not stop him from trying to force Anna to take him back. Anna says he was stalking her while she was living with her parents. She would see his car parked outside all the time, and he was driving alongside her when she left for work in the morning. He would send threatening text messages about how he would hurt their children, or her. Jonas had the children every other weekend. One time he sent Anna a message saying, I hope you said your proper goodbyes to the children, because that was the last time you ever saw them. Anna went to the police and reported him, but they did not take his threats seriously. The police said that people do all sorts of weird things after a divorce, and that she should just wait and see. By Sunday night, Jonas came back with the children unharmed, thank God. According to Anna, Jonas was never violent towards her. He would just use verbal threats and mentally abuse her. Anna paints a picture of Jonas as a person with two faces. From the outside, he could be very charming and he ran his own business successfully. He was popular among co-workers and he had many friends. At home, he was condescending and mean to her. Just a few months after he split up with Anna, he quickly moved on to pursue a relationship with Lotta. He had his older kids stay with him and Lotta every other weekend, but that was the extent of his parenting. Lotta would usually be the one taking care of his kids when he was supposed to spend time with them. But back to the relationship between Jonas and Lotta. Jonas and Lotta's divorce were finalized on December 6, 2012. A month before that, Jonas had finally moved out of the house. He rented the small cabin on Dalare, and he had his three children by Lotta stay with him every other weekend. Similar to when he separated from Anna, he immediately started dating a new woman. Let's call her Stina. Stina got pregnant after dating Jonas for only a couple of months. Jonas wanted her to get an abortion, but she wanted to keep the baby. He ended up in an on-again, off-again relationship with Stina, but they did not move in together. Lotta thought it was very irresponsible of him having a baby with his new girlfriend so soon after their divorce. They got into a huge fight and Jonas decided to hurt Lotta by not letting their three children see the older half-siblings anymore. Jonas forbid them from having any form of contact with each other. Anna said this really hurt both her children and Lotta's children. After all, they had grown up together. And the mothers were of course also hurting by seeing their children suffer. Anna, the first ex-wife, also said that she noticed how Jonas changed his behavior after the divorce from Lotta was finalized. He became hard to reach on the phone and he would rarely prioritize to see his older kids. He was moody and closed off. In the three months before the murders, Anna couldn't reach him at all. And on September 2nd, Jonas's new girlfriend Stina gave birth to their son, Jonas's sixth child.
About two weeks before the killings, Lotta and Anna made arrangements for the children to see each other again. It had been almost a year since they had met, and they were all really excited about it. But when Jonas found out, he threw a fit and said that he would never want to speak to any of them again. On Friday, September 27th, 2013, the day before the fire, Jonas picked up Maya from school and her younger brothers, Simon and Emil, from daycare. They drove straight to the cabin on Dalarö. The children spoke with Lotta on the phone later that night, and she could hear how they were laughing and having a good time with their dad. He sends a text to Lotta later that night, stating the following. It's time for me to stop being nice to you. And whatever happens next is a direct effect of your behavior towards me in the past year. The following day, Jonas and the children went to see his girlfriend Stina and his newborn son who lived in the suburb in the southern part of Stockholm. On their way back to Dalarö, they stopped at a gas station in Brandbergen, where he filled the car up and bought three bottles of lighter fluid. They had macaroni and sausages for dinner. While in the kitchen, Jonas removed the battery from the fire detector. When he is later questioned by the police, he said he couldn't eat anything because he was so anxious for what he was about to do. He also told the detectives that Maya said that this meal was the best she had ever had. After dinner, they watched TV and Jonas put the kids to bed. The cabin was very small, and the children all slept together in the top bunk of a large bunk bed. When the children had fallen asleep, Jonas sat down by the computer and closed his Facebook account. He also went to a gambling site and spent his last money. When he shut the computer off, he also sent a text message to his oldest son by Anna. It said, Take good care of your little sister and always be nice to your girlfriend. He removed the ladder from the bunk bed, making sure the kids couldn't get down. He then continued to spread about 80 paper napkins on the floor. He grabbed one of the balls of lighter fluid and poured it on the napkins. He lit one of them in the kitchen end of the cabin, and he waited until he could see the fire had started to spread across the floor. He walked out the door, closed it behind him, went over to his car and drove off while his three children were trapped in a burning nightmare. Maya, Simon and Emil woke up just a couple of minutes after Jonas left the cabin. The heat had already reached them, even if their bed was right next to the ceiling. 
they immediately started screaming hysterically for help. Maya realized that the ladder was gone and that they wouldn't be able to get down from the bed. She had to leave her brothers in the bed and started to howl herself down. She went into the bathroom to look for her father, but when she couldn't find him anywhere, she crawled across the floor towards the door and managed to open it and escape the flames. Maya ran as quickly as she could to the neighboring house and started knocking frantically on their door. A woman comes out and they both run back to the cabin while she is making the 112 call. That is the call that you heard in the beginning. The little girl is called Maya and she's seven years old. She lived with her mother Lotta and her two little brothers Emil and Simon three and five years old. Since her parents divorced a year and a half before, Maya spent every other weekend with her father, Jonas Westerlund. This weekend in the end of September was no exception. Only this time, her father was nowhere to be found when she woke up in the middle of the night and saw her house in flames. When emergency services finally arrived at the scene, the cabin was burning at an alarming rate. Efforts were focused on keeping the fire under control and make sure it didn't spread to the woods or other surrounding buildings. One of the firemen later told the press that the house burned like a torch when they got there. The firemen had the fire under control by four in the morning, and luckily it did not spread to the main house. The two dead children were both found when the firemen could enter the house safely. One was found immediately, right next to the entrance door. It took quite some time to find the other body, since it was covered by burned pieces of furniture. Burning to death might seem like the worst possible way to die, because human flesh does not catch fire easily. But thank God, dying in a fire is not a slow and painful process. Carbon monoxide poisoning usually comes before you inhale smoke and catch fire, which makes dying pretty much painless. But still, the panic they must have felt before going unconscious. It is a quarter past six on Sunday morning when police come knocking on the door to the mother Lotta's house. They rang the doorbell and it was ringing and ringing and Lotta was sound asleep. At first I thought it was some drunk who had wandered off to the wrong house and would eventually leave. But I finally decided to get out of bed after all. I was pretty upset and irritated when I walked the steps to the entrance hall, Lotta says. She remembers opening the door, not understanding why there were uniformed policemen standing outside. She let them in and she sat down in the living room and one of them kneeled down before her. He put his hand on her knee and said, there has been a fire in Dalara. 
Lotta tells the reporter that for a split second she thought, What does that have to do with me? And then she remembers screaming from the top of her lungs when the officer told her about the boys. She is shaking her head and she is closing her eyes in an attempt to escape reality. The rest of the morning is a blur. Lotta picks up her phone and she sees that she got a text message from her ex-husband Jonas. It had been received at 2.41 a.m. when she was still sleeping. It said, Revenge is sweet, you fucking idiot. At that exact moment she knew. She tried calling Jonas, but his phone was turned off. The policeman drove her to the hospital, where Maya was waiting for her. Maya was in the psychiatric ward for children, and there was a nurse holding and hugging her when Lotta walked in. When Maya saw her mother coming through the door, she ran to her, and they hugged. She whispered to her mom as she started to cry. I'm sorry, mom. I couldn't save them. Lotta calls her parents shortly after she arrived to the hospital, and they can't believe what she's saying to them. But they quickly rush to the hospital to be with her and Maya. A couple of hours later, at nine in the morning, they all go home together. Lotta's dad is driving the car, but they are all in deep shock. At the same time, Jonas is driving further and further away from Stockholm and Dalarna. After he stopped and sent the text to Lotta, he went back out on the freeway, driving south. He drove for six hours, with his goal set on the island of Öland in the southeast of Sweden. Öland is the second largest Swedish island and the smallest of the traditional provinces of Sweden. It is connected to the mainland by the 6-kilometer or 3.7 miles long Öland Bridge, which opened on September 30, 1972. While Jonas is driving to Öland, the police puts out a warrant for his arrest. When they hear about his girlfriend and newborn son, they fear for their safety and quickly sends a patrol over there to protect them and also search for Jonas. Lotta and Maya was also put under observation by the police, in case Jonas was hiding and trying to come after them. Jonas grew up with his mother and his older brother in the suburb north of Stockholm. He never knew who his father was, and his mother wouldn't tell him. This was an ongoing conflict between the two of them. And when Jonas found out that his father had passed away, he didn't speak to his mother for ten years. One of the most important people in his life was his aunt, 
who had been almost like a mother to him while growing up. When he cut his mother off, he and his aunt remained very close. Three months before the killings, in the spring of 2013, his aunt passed away and Jonas did not cope well with this loss. Jonas later says to the police that he doesn't know why he drove to Erland. He had been there once before with the kids, but he had never been there alone, he states. It was about 8 o'clock on Sunday morning when Jonas passed Kalmar and reached the Erland Bridge. He hadn't eaten anything since lunch on Friday, and he hadn't slept for 36 hours. Jonas still kept driving. He drove all across Erland that day. He stopped the car sometime in the afternoon, turned his phone back on, and started recording a video confession on his iPhone. The movie is one hour long, and I will only quote a small portion of it. This is what he said. Well, what am I going to say? What I have done is stupid, mindless, selfish. There's many things you can call it. Many, many evil words for what I have done. But what is done is done. I did it because I didn't want my children to grow up without the father like me. They are in a very sensitive age. A and B, that is his older children. A and B are older. They can manage without me and they have a great bonus father. My youngest? Well, Stina always wanted to raise him by herself. And I'm sure she has planned for me being out of the picture anyway. So about what I just did. I don't know how it went, but I suppose it didn't go so well. I took three kids away because I don't think their mother deserves to be a mother. She is the most insensitive, cold, pathetic and selfish person in the world. She totally changed from the warm, sensitive and loving woman I used to know. Well, I don't know. She's just a shell of a human being. I've been planning this for a month. Really, since I realized there is no money left. The weirdest thing is that I don't feel the least bit sorry for what I did now. I'm just totally blank. Well, I might be crazy, but when I left the cabin, I felt like I did my kids a favor. That's sick, I know. But I haven't cried until now, sitting here in the car, recording this. My plan is to stay awake for as long as I can. And when I'm completely exhausted, I'll do it. I'm checking out. Probably going downstairs. I've been evil for my whole life, so that's just what I expect. After recording this video, Jonas parked the car in the small coastal town of Hulterstad on the southeastern part of the island. Early Monday morning, the police had tracked his phone to Hulterstad 
and sent a car over there. While the two officers were sitting in their car, they see Jonas walking towards them. He had blood stains on his shirt and wounded arms. The two policemen got out of the car and walked up to him. Jonas said that he had failed his suicide attempt and that he might as well report to the police. Because of his cuts, an ambulance were called to the scene. He was brought to the hospital, but they moved him to the police station in Kalmar shortly thereafter. Jonas' plan was to commit suicide. And since he didn't want his kid to grow up without a father, he decided to kill them first. And I have to quote the captain from True Crime Garage here. He said in one episode, If you ever think about committing an extended suicide, be sure to kill yourself first. On November 14th, the funeral for the two boys were held. The sight of the two little caskets in the church was heartbreaking for all the attendees. But it was a beautiful ceremony. Lotta stayed in Stockholm for about a year after the murders. When she was strong enough, she packed up her things sold the house and moved back to her hometown of Kramfors in the northern parts of Sweden. She now lives with Maya in a house near her parents, and her life is slowly coming back to something that resembles a normal life. And she found love again. Her high school sweetheart, Pelle, he never left Kramfors, and when Lotta moved back again they started seeing each other. And today they live together. They talk about Simon and Emil almost every day. There are pictures of them a little here and there in the yellow brick house they reside in. Their little faces smile back at them from the fridge, the mantelpiece and the bedroom. Maya likes to say goodnight to her little brothers before she goes to sleep. At first... She refused to sleep, but now she's actually coping quite well, Lotta says to a reporter three years later. It's me and her against the world. Grief is what it is. Some days are good, some days are worse. I want people to know that there is a way out of despair. You can go through something like this and survive. I didn't know that when this happened to me. I wish I had. People think they may hurt me by saying the wrong things. But the worst has already happened to me. There is nothing they can say or do to make it worse, Lotta says. Talking to others that have lost children has helped her really much. She has also been connected to a group for surviving relatives of murder victims. The trial against Jonas started on February 18, 
2014. Jonas was charged with two counts of first-degree murder, attempted first-degree murder, and aggravated arson. He shows no remorse or emotions whatsoever in the courtroom. No tears, no sobbing. At one time during the hearings, he said, Everyone in this courtroom feels grief. I feel anger. I hate myself. I'm just sitting here hating myself. The prosecutor makes it very clear that there are no mitigating circumstances surrounding his crime. He had planned it out for some time. And the fact that one kid survived was pure luck. After three days, he was found guilty and sent for a psychiatric evaluation. They found him to be mentally capable of serving prison time, and he was sentenced to life imprisonment. Their assessments show that Jonas was manipulative and controlling, and suffered from maladaptive stress reactions which basically means that he coped very badly with the stress of his personal finances being ruined, the divorce, and losing his aunt. But he was not considered mentally ill. Jonas was sent to the correction facility of Tideholm. As a child murderer, he has problems being accepted by the other inmates, and he has been subjected to violence many times. He has been placed in solitary confinement six times in the past year to protect his own safety. It's hard to understand what could make a person do something like this. He seems to be a very self-centered person. For example, he talked about when he was first arrested. He said, They only asked me about the crime. No one asked me how I was doing. And during the trial, he only showed emotions when talking about his own childhood. No emotions at all when talking about his crime. My thoughts go out to Lotta and to the very brave Maya who survived the fire. Thank you so much for listening to episode 24 of True Crime Sweden. You can reach me at truecrimesweden at gmail.com or find me on social media. Just search for True Crime Sweden. And there's a Facebook discussion group that you can join if you want to discuss the cases further. You just have to search for True Crime Sweden discussion group on Facebook. And now over to today's fun fact about Sweden. Today, I'm going to talk a little about Swedish law when it comes to divorce and inheritance. Both divorce and inheritance seems to play a role in many murders in the US. People get killed over money. Someone might not want to pay alimony, so it's easier to kill. Or some people get killed over life insurance or an inheritance. But if you marry someone in Sweden, and then you decide you want a divorce. There are several ways this could go. If you and your partner both apply for a divorce and you don't have any kids, 
the marriage could be over in a couple of weeks. But if you have children under 16 of age, or if only one part is applying for a divorce, you get a reflection period for six months before the divorce is final. And what about the money, you might ask? Well, you split everything 50-50 when you divorce. Unless, of course, there is a prenuptial agreement. But if there aren't any prenups or other agreements, you split everything between the two partners. If one person wants to stay in the house, that person has to pay the ex-partner half of what the house is worth to be able to remain there. This also means that if I own a house worth two millions when I marry someone, half the house becomes theirs as soon as we're married, as long as there are no prenups. The only exception from this is if you are married for five years or less. In that case, you only have to give one-fifth of your previous ownings for each year. So, for example, if you divorce after three years, you only have to give 60% of your previous ownings to your partner. But the big difference between Sweden and, for example, the U.S., is that no one ever has to pay alimony for an ex-partner. You divorce, you split everything 50-50, and then you go on with your separate lives. If you have kids and the kids stay with one parent after the divorce, the other parent should, of course, pay child support. This is something you can decide how much between you without involving the courts. But if you disagree and can't get along about it, there is a set amount of money that should be paid by the parent who doesn't have custody of the kids. And if that parent refuses to pay, the other parent still gets the money, but from the government. And the government claims the money from the person for you. And when it comes to inheritance, a parent cannot take a kid out of his or her will. This is something that we hear a lot in movies, like if you don't finish college or do this or do that, I will remove you from the will. That can't happen here. A parent can choose to leave 50% of what they own to anyone they choose, but the remaining 50% is to be divided between the children. There is a difference if the parents are still married or not when they pass away. So if the parents are married and one of them die, the kids don't inherit anything until the other parent also passed away. But if your parents are divorced, it doesn't matter if they are remarried or whatever, the children still get their part of the inheritance right away. I hope you found this interesting. I think it's a big difference that a parent in Sweden can't ever threat to remove their kids from the will if they don't do as they wish. If you have any ideas on things I can address here in the fun fact part of the podcast, feel free to email me at truecrimesweden at gmail.com. Well, that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope to see you next time. Goodbye. Hey, Noah.